hall, there's this sort of reverence that people have. And I'm like, we're not meditating yet. Let's, <laughs> let's connect. You know, so sweet. And I was uh, riding out here tonight uh, from the East Bay, just thinking, uh, in some ways, I mean, I, I love to do what I do. I'm very grateful for this uh, role I get to play. But I also, like, I'm not sure I want to be the person who sits in front of people tonight and tries to say very much. It's uh, one of the weirder times uh, in the world, and I, and I certainly can't ignore that. Um, I have been obsessively watching MSNBC lately, which my daughter has been trying to get me to stop doing. She thinks I have a problem. <laughs> but it's really, it, the last couple of days, I was cracking up. I was like, oh, this is better than Comedy Central. You know, some of the things that have been happening uh, in the political world have been kind of cheering me up. This morning when I heard that the Koch brothers we're going to put up a big, a massive movement towards supporting a DREAM Act, then I just went into hysterics. I was like, okay, the world has turned upside down. If you don't know who the Koch brothers are, they're uh, right-wing brothers who own like vast oil companies and are constantly trying to undermine the, env- the environment and uh, you know pollute the political uh, sphere. So the idea that they would support the uh, DREAMers is... Anyway, and yesterday, uh, you know, I, I met the mother of a dreamer, and it turns out she works for our family. So, um, so that touched home. Um, and so this morning, as I was meditating, or I should say, I was sitting on my meditation chair in front of my Buddha in the place that I call my meditation place, I started obsessing about uh, an earthquake. I'm sure nobody has thought about that in the last 24 hours, right? And then, you know, this is what my mind does, just in case you're wondering, a little look into Kevin's mind. Like, uh, I'm, I really like apocalyptic fantasies. Um, and uh, it was like, okay, but what if I, I play golf a lot in Vallejo, okay? Yeah, so don't judge me. And I, you know, I have to go over the Carquinez Bridge, and I'm like, okay, what if there's an earthquake while I'm playing golf in Vallejo? And like the bridge goes out, like, how am I going to get home? And like, what am I going to do? I'm going to be like walking along the freeway and try, how am I going to get across the Carquinez Strait? You know? So, well, I was thinking, what better place, safest place in the world? golf course because nothing can fall on you to get the wide fairways you know I mean it might kind of cause more of a break in your putt you know you'd be like whoa what the heck that was weird okay let me try that again but other than that it's probably you know really safe you know you you go into the (laughs) snack bar at the turn and get a hot dog and they're they're like but uh, you know it that Meditation. We are going to meditate, by the way, just for those who are, who are new to this show. It often starts out a little off-kilter, but uh, I usually get it back together by the end of the evening. Um, you know, I've been on a lot of silent retreats, relatively long. I mean, anywhere from 10 days to three months. And 
And uh, one of the things that often happens in the middle of a retreat is you start having these bizarre fantasies. And uh, because, you know, you're, you're doing sitting meditation and then you're doing walking meditation. And then after that you go back in the hall and you do some more sitting meditation. And then maybe some walking meditation. Then maybe lunch. <laughs> and then, you know, some sitting meditation, some walking meditation, sitting meditation, walking meditation. Dharma talk, woohoo! Sitting meditation, walking. It's boring is what I'm getting at. And so at a certain point your mind just starts to generate stuff like, what if this happened? Or like, you know, and just all kinds of you know, fantasies, whatever directions they go, down or up or sideways, you know, and horrors. And, uh, I mean, there was one time here where this guy, this young man, got up and yelled at Jack Cornfield in the meditation hall in the middle of the two-month retreat. And he was obviously having some sort of an episode. And so by the end of the day, in my mind, he had returned with an automatic weapon and killed everybody at Spirit Rock, you know. And I, I spent several hours in that fantasy. So I was thinking about how, and you know, to put this on like a different level, human beings, you know, like every generation has to have its war. Because people don't know how to handle peace. You know, it, it freaks them out. And like, I mean, because I was thinking about how, like, I find it sort of exciting that there's all these hurricanes. I can watch them, you know. It's kind of like Game of Thrones and then switch over to the hurricanes. You're just sort of madness, you know, zombie dragons, you know. Um, But, yeah, there's this part of us that wants excitement. And even when we find peace, this is one of the reasons why people relapse, right? They don't... They don't know how to handle, like, there's no drama in my life. Like, do you know any of those people who are, like, really well off and don't really have to work? So the thing, and so the things that become problems in their life are, like, the drapes in the bedroom. It's like a crisis for two weeks. Do you know any people like that? I have relatives like that. They don't listen to my Dharma talks, fortunately. So, But, uh, you know, it's like... It's kind of weird how we are, you know. So I just try to be honest about myself and, uh, and I hope that I'm dragging everybody along with my honesty because uh, I don't want to be the only one who's like, you know, fantasizing about earthquakes on the golf course. Uh, maybe I am. Yeah. I did go out and try to figure out how to turn off the gas in our house this morning after that. No, it was after the earthquake oh. that I was fantasizing about it. Yeah, no, I was, you know, it cut in on my uh, hurricane watching last night was the earthquake. So, you know, I was, okay. I like to stay up on all the disasters. Uh, okay, well, that's enough of a prelude. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have like a, such a mellow meditation now. It's going to be like, it's just because we burn it all off. You have to burn it off and then you can just, I don't know, I don't know how it works. So I'll uh, give some guided instruction uh, for a while and then I'll turn off the microphone.
and leave it silent for a little while as well. You want to, you know, sitting upright, uh, you want to have both feet on the floor if you're sitting in a chair so that you're in a really stable posture. And you can close your eyes or just lower your gaze if you're not comfortable closing your eyes in a group. And then bringing your attention into the body. You can start just with a kind of general sense of feeling your body. And you can feel how your body is situated, your balance, posture, alignment. So we want to sit in a way that there's no tension from holding posture. So that means we're trying to really rely on the spine and the skeletal system to hold us upright, not muscles. When you have that alignment, you can try to relax and release any muscles, any tension. Relaxing the facial muscles, the jaw, the eyes. Relaxing the shoulders. Softening the belly. Having a sense of your connection to the earth. We're drawn to the earth by its gravity. It's what gives us a feeling of weight. And even though we're separated from the actual earth by this building, we can still have a sense of being connected. So the body soft, breathing naturally, opening to awareness of sound. It's a very quiet space besides my voice. See what else you can hear. But your quiet space you can often hear inside your own ears, that humming sound, sometimes called the sound of silence or the nada sound.
And noticing what mood or emotion is present for you right now. Might be very subtle. Might be something you can name or something without a name, just a feeling. Just to see if you can sense that. Just the emotional tone. With mindfulness, we have this sense of openness and receptivity, quality of acceptance, combined with a kind of investigation, curiosity. So it's not passive, it's a real engagement to be present for whatever is arising. not trying to push away experiences or grasp onto something. This is one of the things that makes mindfulness practice challenging and sometimes confusing as we're learning it. That although we'll use the breath as a focal point, we're not trying to block out thoughts or feelings or sounds or sensations. Whatever really becomes prominent in our awareness, we can examine, pay attention to. Or using the breath as a kind of grounding or centering focus. You can feel the breath at the nostrils, the air coming in and out of the body. Or if that's not really easy for you to feel, just use the movement of the belly. The belly rises and falls with the breath. You can follow that. Pretty easy to feel that. And there's nothing special about the breath you're supposed to notice. It's another question people sometimes have. You're supposed to notice whatever you're able to be aware of. At first, it might be hard to feel the subtlety of breath. something that normally catches our attention unless we're running out of air or we're exercising. So part of learning this practice is to just learn to pay attention to the subtleties of experience. And as I said before, that 
the mind will often throw up dramas, fears or memories, fantasies, something to entertain us. Because the quiet and the peace, that's not something we're used to. Some ways we depend upon stimulation to make us know we're alive. We're not stimulated. We don't learn how to pay attention to the subtleties. And that's what we call boredom. Mindfulness tells us that we can pay attention to anything and find interest there. Even something as simple as the breath becomes quite compelling as the mind settles around it, becomes absorbed in it. This is about discovering the richness of the mind, of the heart, of consciousness itself. Realizing that what makes life interesting is life itself. It's quite a remarkable experience to be alive. To have senses have consciousness. A miracle, really. Of course, that's not what we're doing with our meditation, trying to think about being alive. We're just trying to be alive, find out what that means without adding anything to it. What does it mean to have a body and a mind? What is that? experience on the most fundamental level without adding anything to it, without adding a story, a drama, to just be with the breath, the breath that is our life, in and out, moment by moment.
the simple process of this meditation. Pay attention to the breath. And when you realize the mind has wandered, come back to the breath.
Just for the last couple minutes of the sit, let's let's send some loving kindness, some caring to those who are suffering from the devastations of hurricanes and earthquakes and fires right now. They are not different from us or or really separate from us. They are us. Just having a sense of caring Knowing what it's like to be in dangerous places and have your world turned upside down. Many of us have been through some kind of experience in our lives, maybe not like those, but something where we lose somebody or something or as in recovery where we we lose our bearings human beings spend so much time in competition with each other and in grasping after pleasures, all the struggles we have amongst ourselves and then sometimes forgetting our fundamental connections, that we all live in this fragile world, this life that's never safe. We're able to forget that for periods of time, but then something happens and we're reminded that none of this is guaranteed. In a moment we can lose everything we hold dear. May all those who are at risk to have lost lost things, lost people may we all be safe now may all beings be free from suffering may we find peace together And the season turns. Just driving out tonight, just aware that, oh, the light is lower in the sky than it's been in quite a while on my ride to Spirit Rock.
Anyway, anybody who books a Caribbean cruise in September is really making unwise choices, but God bless them. Okay, a few uh, announcements from the marketing department. That's the Kevin Griffin marketing department. By the way, I am Kevin Griffin. Did I introduce myself? I don't think I did. Um, and this is the Dharma and Recovery uh, class gathering the second Friday. And I found one thing very sort of, for those of us who are you know, into like weird little things, this is the earliest day in the month that Dharma and Recovery can happen. This is the second Friday, and the first of the month was a Friday. Uh, and I realized I don't, I, that must happen all the time, but I never noticed it before. So I'm excited. Okay, I'm easily entertained. So there's some flyers out there for the 14th annual Buddhism in the 12 Steps uh, five-day intensive meditation retreat with Kevin Griffin and Greg Pergament teaching Qigong, October 3rd, 7th to 8th. Vajrapani Institute, Boulder Creek. If you're interested in coming, please come. Uh, the first time this retreat was taught was about three months after One Breath at a Time was released. So uh, that's been 14 years, apparently. Um, and on that note, the marketing department also wanted me to mention that One Breath at a Time is now available as an audio book, thanks to yours truly, and many months in a recording studio. Ten hours plus. Uh, it's on Audible. So, and if you are like somebody who really would love to listen to that book, and, and I'm sure there's a lot of people who just wouldn't care less, um, but, you know, because you might, if you've read it, which of course I know you all have and memorized it, but, um, and you're broke, but you'd really love to listen to it, Go to my website, kevingriffin.net, and email me, and I will send you a uh, code to have a free copy of it. This is just for people who need it. For those who can afford it, I need the money. So, you know, <laughs> I, didn't, you know I didn't just record this because I like to spend hours and hours and reading my book in the recording studio. Yeah. Um, what other marketing department stuff? Tomorrow I will be at the Napa Insight group uh, for a day long called Living Kindness, Buddhist Teachings for a Troubled World. That is the title of my next upcoming book next spring, God Willing. Uh, when I say God Willing, I don't really mean God. It's just shorthand for if all the things in the universe combine and work out. I don't want to assume that things are going to happen because I might die or whatever. I get a concussion and not be able to write anymore. So I don't really mean God. I mean karma. But it's just an expression. It's shorthand. Just want you to be clear about that. I'm not saying I don't believe in God. But I'm not saying I do, so don't. None of your business. Okay, so. I know some people like me. Yeah. Um, but, oh, I'll just mention this too. It's kind of an early warning, but 
one breath at a time, the book, the hard copy, is going to be reissued with a new forward and a new afterward uh, by the original publisher and a new cover. Like, who needs it? But that's what they want to do. So that's going to be in February. So, you know, stay tuned. Okay. Announcement duka, we call that. So, yeah, come to... But uh, day long should be great in Napa tomorrow if you're around 1625 Salvatore Avenue. I don't know how they pronounce it. It's on my website, which I said is kevingriffin.net. I also have .com. You'll get redirected. Um, so any questions about meditation? Let's get back on the subject here. Um, you know, I always like to take questions. Uh, I have a lot of questions myself, but uh, and later I'll give a talk. But if there's, you know, um, you were sitting there for like thirty minutes doing nothing, so something must have come up. You, know. you can't remember. I know. Reminds me, Jimmy Vaughn is playing with Eric Clapton now. It's pretty cool. So, sorry, I haven't asked this question in a long time, but it comes up every now and then. Uh-huh. Any tricky tricks for when the mind is just spinning? Uh-huh. <laughs> See, I didn't need the microphone. <laughs> tricky tricks for the mind is just spinning. Um, you know, my main refuge is the body. And, um, and what... You know, usually the mind is sw- spinning because there's some emotional energy. Does that make sense? And so, you've heard me say this probably a dozen times, but Bears repeating, as they say. You know, go into the energy, the emotional energy in the body. Breathe with that, open to that. The thing is that we don't want to feel our emotions. So instead of feeling emotions, we think. And we don't, a lot of times we don't even realize that the reason we're thinking is because we're feeling something that's uncomfortable. It's like, uh, it really is, it's, it's energy. I mean, you can feel it as energy. And so it triggers, the energy in the body triggers the mind to start running. And it's partly the mind is trying to figure out how to manage this energy, how to fix the feeling sometimes. But sometimes it just like makes you go off. Partly, like I was talking about before, it's just as a distraction. Like I don't want to feel what I'm feeling, so I'm just going to space out, you know. So that all, But all of it... Much of it comes back to the emotions in the body that we are avoiding. So it takes, this is the part of practice that really takes courage. It's like, okay, I'm going to turn towards that. I'm going to open to that. I'm going to let that come through. Fearless, you know, it's, it's hard because, you know, especially addicts, I mean, we've, you know, made a career out of not feeling our feelings, right? And that's why particularly early recovery is so difficult because not only have you taken away that escape and that pleasure, but now you're facing the stuff that you were trying to avoid all along without 
you know, the thing that took the edge off. And you don't have any skills for it either, right, at first. Hopefully you learn some. But, um, you know, so I do a lot of just like breathing into my stomach, into my chest, softening and just having a sense of like a waves coming through. But as long as they stay nonverbal and I don't get into that thinking about them stuff, the waves tend to settle. You know, they, it tends to, and then I, I'm just resting with the energy in the body. That's, you know, and so that's the main thing that I do. It's not a solution because sometimes it's just not enough. It's like there's got to be that willingness, right? It's interesting. I mean, when you're sitting, it's like, yeah, I want to meditate. And then you sit down and you're like, yeah, but I don't really want to. You know what I mean? Like, I don't really want to do the whole thing. I want to like get some quiet time and I want to put in my time and you know I want to like be a meditator and all but like the actual effort to really engage in the process I can't always arouse that energy you know I not can't, I'm not always I don't always have the motivation um, you know the and I will say so so to me like the feeling the feelings is kind of the key thing but the traditional antidote to that is doing a very repetitive concentration practice and that can be helpful too just counting your breaths for a little while I, don't, I, I can't do that for a long time but even to count 10 breaths just to kind of like slow things down and get them to a point where you can like at least see what's going on because sometimes yeah it's so busy you can't even just like catch the, the, even the feeling in the body or anything so you you know count some breaths there's a I was just reading a little pamphlet from Ajahn Sumedho from the 80s that I picked up at a monastery on the east coast and he has a thing about Budo Budo is the mantra that they teach in the monasteries in Thailand and on the in breath Bud and on the out breath Do and you just do that Bud but he actually says something about like keep it the energy up because I think doing that could kind of get sluggish but if you're spinning out you want to relax the energy so yeah budo it's a nice it, it's a nice mantra because it's not like you know a Hindu thing like most mantras are Hindu the ones that you know the TM and all that uh, we don't have a lot of in the Theravadan world, we don't have a lot of mantras. You have the Tibetans. But. There was that nice, a couple of years ago, you talked about a gata. Thich Nhat Hanh, yeah. In, out, deep, slow, calm, ease. Yeah. That's in my workbook. It's in my workbook, which is actually available on the, on the table back. Yeah, I think it's in... I think it's in step 11. Yeah, that's a really good calming because it's not so boring as counting your breaths. It's got a little bit of juice to it. Yeah, good. Thank you for the question. And, you know, obviously I assume that others have the same problem. Do you have a question? Okay. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's been in prison for the last eight years and studying meditation. He's still in? He's getting out in January, yeah. Oh. And uh, we were talking about recovery and about my practice. And um, 
And I was like, yeah, he, he gave me some advice. And I said, yeah, well, I'll, I'll go do that after I get off the phone, you know, and I'll go sit. And he was like, well, meditation starts now or something to that effect. And, nice. and what he was getting at is, is that you, know, you may sit in the morning, you may sit in the evening for 5, 10, 15 minutes or whatever, but what about your practice that you carry through your whole day, um, moment to moment, that's always active, yeah. um, like as being like something to strive for? And I'm just curious what you might say or what practice you have that you carry or if you just sort of sit and then sit and then sit. Or <laughs> no, it's no. Just I, um, consistent. Thanks. You know, the easiest, there's a couple triggers and cues for me. The, the easiest one, the most accessible one to me, is when I'm walking. And that can be just walking down the hall, <laughs> you know, but especially when I'm walking outside, that tends to be a time when I can just, oh, right. The main thing is to remember to be mindful. It's not hard to be mindful, right? Because like when your friend was like, well, meditation is now, it's like you probably were like, oh, yeah, right. I hope you were. Anyway, you know, you can kind of go, oh, yeah, right. I'm on the phone. I can feel my hand on the phone. I can feel my butt on the chair or whatever. I'm, I'm breathing, you know, you can feel it. Being mindful itself isn't hard. What's hard is to remember to do it and to sustain it. In meditation, it's hard to sustain it. But during the day, it's hard to remember to do it. So, you know, so I use the cue of, oh, I'm walking, like, because it just, like, I can feel my body. So I feel myself moving through space. If I'm walking down the street, I look at stuff rather than looking at my phone, <laughs> right? Uh, um, you know, look at trees, look at people, look at buildings. That just, like, it makes me present. Cause, so it's just about using the senses, right? So I feel my body, I see things, I hear birds. I mean, not to be too corny, but I mean, that's just kind of, that's the world, right? To see the world around me. And the other thing is strong emotions. When some strong emotion comes up, whether it's anger or sadness or anxiety, that kind of brings me back, like, oh, okay, you know, I need to be with this. I need to let this in, you know. Um, and so that also applies to, you know, conflict in relationships. So, it, so it, it, you know, whatever you can use as a as a as a reminder, you know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh has a bunch of things. He's got a book called Present Moment, Wonderful Moment, which is where those gatas come from. And he has these little phrases. Like he has something, somebody here might know it. There's one about like when you get in your car. It's like, when my car goes fast, I go fast. Uh, it's before starting my car. Uh-huh. If the car goes fast, I go fast. Yeah. And then like when you see brake lights, it's like, oh, Stop. Stop and breathe, you know. When a, if, a, if you hear a, a phone ring or a, an alert on your phone, it's like, oh, mindfulness bell. So taking three breaths is kind of a, a good tool just when you catch yourself like, oh, what am I doing? Oh, ding. Oh, okay. Let me take three breaths and then I'll check the text, you know. Um, so stuff like that. Uh, it's hard. I mean, it's not h- hard. It's... Uh, I mean, it's not difficult to do. It's, as I say, difficult to remember. And it really takes, like, a commitment. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I like these questions. 
I know. You walked away from the pretty girl. Can I just ask? No. No, you can't. Well, hello. First of all, I just want to say what I, I really appreciated what you said before. We meditated about the whole earthquake and things like that because that's totally going through my head. Yeah. When I was um, early in recovery in 2003, I happened to hear someone speak who we called it a four-step workshop, but really what he was doing was explaining how the mind works, especially for an addict uh, uh, and an alcoholic, from a Buddhist perspective. And it, I didn't realize this until I'd listened to him talk for years. Hmm. And I wasn't able to, this was around 2003, I wasn't able to really start a real bona fide meditative practice until I had well over a decade of sobriety. I've got about 13 years, hopefully 14 on December 25th. God willing. And, and uh, yeah, that's my gift Christmas, Christmas present, a chip. Nice. Um, so I've, in the last two or three years, I've had a very, what I consider a very fulfilling meditation practice. It combines a 10th and a 10th and an 11th step. Mm -hmm. So there's some affirmations that help shift the energy, get rid of the negative thoughts so I can move into positive meditation. And it involves reading spiritual books, Pema Chodron, Thich Nhat Hanh, Eckhart, all that. Captain Griffin. Go on. You you got it. Don't get ahead of me. Because you're going to like what's about to happen. Don't get ahead of me. Because about 10 years ago, this woman gave me this book that I kept trying to read over the years, and every time I picked it up, it wouldn't resonate, so I put it back on the shelf. But I'm a big believer that there's a time when a reader and a book can come together. Yeah, I hear that. And around the time of the eclipse, I got this book up, and I started reading it, and every section, I can only read a section a day because it's so powerful right now. And this morning, I just finished the section on the hindrances. And I only got up to the point where uh, the one, it's the, I just finished the one that has something and tupor. tupor. I can't remember what the Sloth other and torpor. That yeah. That's where I finished today. Hmm. This is what's happening in my meditation now. I, I have to still kind of calm the mind and all that. But what has happened since this eclipse, and I've started reading your book, is... When I'm calm and my mind is clear, something's happening that's never happened before, which is I'm getting these very strong images. Mm-hmm. And I, I've never experienced that before. And the best I can describe it is it's like a Salvador Dali painting, literally. Mm-hmm. And uh, like there'll be a tree from one season and an object that's... And for some reason it all makes sense, but I don't understand it. And there's no moving or living things. These are objects and images and I don't understand them, which for me, when I, when I work with sponsees and talk to my sponsor, when I say I don't understand, I think that's the greatest because it's an opportunity to learn. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering if you've ever had that experience. I've never, in my experience in meditation and spiritual path, had this thing where images are coming up. And I really do not. It, it's something new to me. And I, I welcome anybody who has any insights on that. Well, a couple things I could say about it. One is that just uh, when the mind gets quiet, yeah, there's um, we're imposing less control on the subconscious, and so things just arise. So, uh, like we suppress a lot 
from in the subconscious. That's why we don't have dreams when we're awake, right? But stuff, weird stuff happens at night when we're not controlling, when the conscious mind isn't suppressing. So uh, sometimes, sometimes uh, things that come up are a result of that. Just the quieting, you know, you're quieting the mind, and in in the quieting, in order to quiet your mind, you have to let go of control, right? And that's, you know, we're, that's another kind of misconception about meditation. Or oh, I need to suppress my thoughts. No, actually, you need to just let them all just come through until they just kind of burn off. You're not, you let them come through without engaging them, and they quiet, you know, they quiet down on their own. So that's that's one thing about it. The other thing, which isn't, which you know, might have to do with sloth and torpor, is that sometimes when the mind is getting a little dull, these these images come up, and so be careful that you're not get, getting into a dreamy state. Uh, you you didn't quite describe it that way, but oftentimes when someone says to me, they'll say something like. I'm not sure if I'm falling asleep. Somebody said this to me. I was teaching a retreat last week in North Carolina, and we were in a group interview, and someone said, I'm not sure if I'm falling asleep. And I said, you are. Because if you think you might be. And because then he went on to describe what is often described. The Tibetans called sinking mind. It's like this lovely, you know, kind of opiated state where you're just kind of like, oh, like... And you're kind of, you know, your posture is kind of slumping a little bit, and you're just, you, you know, it's kind of dreamy images and feeling, but you're not, you've really lost touch. So watch out for that. So between those two, that should cover cover you. I hope. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and and when you were describing your meditation as like you know mixing kind of combining steps, I see it that way too. I really see that meditation isn't just the eleven step. It is definitely like an inventory process to some degree that that kind of has to get processed before, as you say, things kind of quiet down. And it's also a turning it over, like a step three. So you know, it it encompasses a lot of the steps. To, uh, the way I practice and the way I view the steps in my practice. Yeah, thanks. So over here, we'll tap one more before we take a little break. Um, you might have just answered my question, but the past two longer sits that I've done, I keep feeling my body lean only this way yeah. or forward. I don't, I feel like I'm being very present. I don't feel like I'm falling asleep, but yeah. it sounds like I might be. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tricky. And, and because we are, you know, the thing about our practice is we're trying to get into a quiet place and we're trying to get relaxed and, you know, our eyes are closed. So our body is used to getting the cues that I'm, my eyes are closed and I'm relaxing, it must be bedtime. You know, our, our body doesn't know that there's this other thing. We have to train it, actually, to go into this other state. If, 
you know, I don't want to be too dramatic about it, but I mean, they do show different brain waves and all that, you know. I'm not so much into that. I mean, it's okay, but... Um, so, but anyway, that, you know, we work, you want to work with that when you, that, you know, you're relaxing, good, you're getting into that kind of quieter space, and then you find you're tipping. So at that, at that point, you know, you bring your posture back up, maybe take a deeper breath. And if it's persistent, to, to open your eyes and sit with your eyes open a little bit just until the energy comes back. It's, it's nice to be able to get to that calm, relaxed place. So it's not that you want to be like, oh, God, I'm falling asleep. Let me snap out of this, you know. <laughs> it's kind of like you're, you know, you're, you want to be around here and you've kind of sunk down here. So you're just like, you want to bring yourself up. And it's, there's, there's this balancing the effort involved in meditation practice that we're playing with all the time, you know. Uh, and uh, um, that it's, it's one of the things that you track as you're sitting. It's like, where's my energy? You know, is it too high? Okay, I need to calm it. Is it too low? I need to bring it up, you know. And so your mindfulness needs to be applied in that way. There's not just one level of effort that you can just sustain all the time because it's as different as you go into different places and different states, you have to kind of uh, work with them. So that's, that's a really part of the art of the practice. And that's it's one of the reasons why it's so important to meditate regularly so that you experience these different sort of states and mind states and body states and start to play with how to work with them all. Um, that's one of the things I find very interesting about practice. There, can I ask another question? No. Is there a position that you think is most helpful to avoid doing? Lying down? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. You know, th- there's a reason why, you know, when you sit on a cushion with your legs crossed, it, it kind of forces, it, it's, it's a little bit more challenging, and so it kind of engages the body. Um, or uh, my knees don't really ho- haven't really held up, but that's the way I, I sat like that for about 25 years, um, and it you know if you do it right and you get in the right posture so that you're very stable, you, the body is compressed, which I think is a more um, conducive posture for meditation. When you're sitting in a chair or sitting up, your, your body's extended a little bit and, and it doesn't give the same sense of groundedness that you have when you're more compact, your legs. So uh, I like that. And it, it also, the reason I'm sitting like this without the chair is because it forces me to engage a little bit more in the core if I had one, you know. <laughs> I, they didn't tell us about that when I was growing up, so I didn't work on it. So I'm too old, it's too late. But it, it sort of forces you to sort of hold your posture a little bit more, which then does create a little bit more energy. So it, it's better to not just kind of sit back like on the couch and, you know, okay, I'll meditate now. You know, it's, it's not about like looking good the way, you know, the cover of yoga journal and the, it's like the person in the person posture, you know. It's not about that, you know. Uh, it's about the, the energetic effect of the posture you're in. So let's take a little break and we'll come back in about seven minutes.
We'll ring a bell so you'll know. And you can, if you want, you can get a flyer or a book. What do we do in the second half? I give a talk. Oh, cool. Totally cool. Yeah. Well, I hope.
Do you think this place would hold up under an 8.2? 8.2? That's like getting up there. Yes, I think it would. You do? I mean, I'm sure they designed it with, you know... You think we're safe for now? <laughs> God willing. So I, I don't know if you got one of these, these, these little uh, postcards for the Clean and Sober, Sober Music Fest. October 14th, Mendocino County Fairgrounds in Boonville, one of my favorite places. Go there and get a boon. Right, a boon is like a good thing, right? It's like a, getting a... Anyway, uh, I'm going to be there. I'm not, what am I going to do? I'm going to guide a meditation and there's like supposedly they might let me jam with one of the bands but they don't want me to embarrass them by my chops being so good that the band wants to quit I'm the headliner that's it, you're really in trouble um, so um, it is uh, September the ninth month which gives us an opportunity to reflect upon Step nine. Everyone's favorite. <laughs> now, you know, my, my kind of, uh, my teaching and my thinking about the steps I guess, uh, you know, it continues to evolve and it's, uh, you know, generally I'm not going to try to give a strict, strict interpretation uh, of the step, but rather just kind of reflect on it around some of the issues that come up around a step like, uh, particularly step nine, which, which um, is, uh, you know, a very powerful, intense one. Uh, Step nine says, we may direct amends to such people. The such people are the people that were in the list we made in step eight. We may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So there's a lot contained in this. And, you know, it's something that you can't really do amends sitting on a cushion. Exactly. But... I think the implications of the step can be, a lot of the implications of the step are relevant to our meditation practice. Um, I guess, you know, what I wanted to talk about, as much as anything, was forgiveness, but also taking responsibility. Um, I guess taking responsibility is sort of the first aspect of the step. I think, you know, forgiveness might come, but in our own inner life, in our own, in our own practice, uh, forgiveness is something we all need to work on uh, in various ways. I mean, in terms of both things that have happened in our lives, things we've done in our lives, as well as our our way of... Uh, treating ourselves, which I think is where where it becomes even more important. So the I thought I would just um, really go through one of the one of my favorite and probably one of the best known suttas uh, in the Pali Canon, uh, 
which addresses uh, really, it's not so much amends, but it, it shows us certainly the Buddha's ability to forgive and his view about, somewhat about the karmic repercussions that we live with. And, you know, there's a, there's this kind of one view, some people have this idea that, oh, like in order to have enlightenment, let's say, or some kind of spiritual awakening, you have to fix or process or get through all your negative karma. You got to burn that all away first before you can become enlightened. And that's not the Buddha. There's actually some places where the Buddha says, no, that's not exactly what you have to do. It's, uh, there's not like a scorecard. Like, I've got all this stuff, I've got to clean it up, and then I can move on. And, and we kind of know this in recovery, too. I mean, many of us, one of the reasons that people talk about the miracles in their lives in recovery is because they feel like if the scorecard were actually playing out fairly, they wouldn't have so many good things in their life. Because a lot of us have done things that we feel like, wow, like that was really messed up. And, and I, maybe I'd made amends, or maybe there was no way to make amends, maybe it's something that just... And, uh, and, but, and yet, my life is really working. You know, I'm happy, or I have you know, good relationships, or good work, or whatever. And... Uh, so we, you know, it's that there isn't this sort of uh, ledger that's that's tracking everything that has to be cleaned up. Um, so, uh, you know, on that broader point, the Buddha said that you can't really understand the workings of karma. The main thing is understand what creates bad karma and what creates good karma, and try to follow that as best you can. But don't think that you're going to be able to like figure out like. Why did I stub my toe? Was that because, you know, I wasn't attentive to my child's foot when they were, or something, you know, you're trying to make some tit for tat, like I got sick because I yelled at that person or something. No, it's not really that. It's way more complicated. There's too many factors involved. So let, let me tell you, and I'll read a little bit of the sutta because there are some phrases in it that are just great. <laughs> I feel like that sort of thing. This is called the Angulimala Sutta. So a little bit of the backstory, which is in the back of the, in, the, in the notes. Um, Angulimala, I'll read you this. The, the name Angulimala is an epithet meaning Garland of Fingers. He was the son of the Brahmin Bhagava, a chaplain to King Pasanadi of Kosala. His given name was Ahimsaka, meaning harmless one. He's, okay, well, okay. He, he studied at Takasila, where he became his teacher's favorite. His fellow students, jealous of him, told the teacher that Ahimsaka had committed adultery with his wife, with the teacher's wife. The teacher, intent on bringing Ahimsaka to ruin, commanded him to bring a thousand human right-hand fingers as an honorarium. So, you know, it'd be difficult for us to quite understand this in our culture, but, you know, this is 
a culture in which you know someone is lives with their teacher is completely kind of subservient to them and they don't you know there's a little bit of magical thinking going on here like okay my teacher said I have to kill people so I guess that's what I'm supposed to do um, Ahimsaka lived in the Jalani forest, Jalini forest, attacking travelers, cutting off a finger of each, and wearing them as a garland around his neck. At the time the sutta opens, it's like the backstory, right? This would be on the text in the beginning of the movie, right? At the time the sutta opens, he was one short of a thousand. And he's all ready to go back to his teacher and say, look, I got my thousand. And had made a determination to kill the next person to come along. The Buddha saw that Angulimala's mother was on her way to visit him. Oh, I think I'll go my, see my son and see how his garland of fingers is coming along. <laughs> Mom. So the Buddha saw that he, she was coming along and aware that Angulimala had the supporting conditions for arhantship, that he had the potential for enlightenment, even though he was doing this terrible stuff. He intercepted him shortly before his mother was due to arrive. Now, one of the things that the Buddha does say about karma is that if you kill your parent or you kill a Buddha, you're going to go to hell. Uh, you know, there, some things aren't clear, but this is clear. Yeah, so, so he was protecting him from killing his mother. So this was like an act of compassion. So then it tells, the sutta starts out with telling about how Angulimala was murdering all these people in the, in the neighborhood. And the Buddha goes out heading for the forest, the Jalini forest. And everybody along, this says, the cowherds, shepherds, and plowmen passing by saw the blessed one walking along the road leading to Angulimala and told him, do not take the, this road, recluse. On this road is the bandit Angulimala, who is murderous, bloody-handed, given to blows and violence, merciless to living beings. Villages, towns, and districts have been laid waste by him. He's constantly murdering people, and he wears their fingers as a garland. Men have come along this road in groups of 10, 20, 30, even 40, but they still have fallen into Angulimala's hands. He, you know, he's a big, strong, powerful guy. I can't think of the mountain. You know, do you guys watch Game of Thrones? It's like, you know, it's like that. It's like. So he keeps, the Buddha's like, no worries. I'm going. So Angulimala sees him coming. He's like, oh, this is easy. You know, I've had to deal with like big groups of people. I'll just knock this guy off quick and I'll be done. You know, he, he says, it is wonderful. It is marvelous. <laughs> this recluse comes alone unaccompanied as if driven by fate why shouldn't I take this recluse's life Angulimala then took up his sword and shield buckled on his bow and quiver and followed close behind the blessed one then the blessed one performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala though walking as fast as he could could not catch up with the blessed one who was walking at his normal pace Mindful, walking. And the bandit Angulimala thought, 
It is wonderful. It is marvelous. Formerly I could catch up with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up with even with a swift chariot and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift deer and seize it. And this guy's like Usain Bolt, like to the max. I mean, he can catch faster than a, can run faster than a deer. But now, though I am walking as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse. I mean, I always think he's like frustrated, although he seems to think it's great. This is really wild. This guy. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse, stop! The Buddha stops, turns and says, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Boom. Then the bandit, Angulimala, thought, These recluses, sons of the Sakyans, speak truth, assert truth. But though this recluse is still walking, he says, I have stopped. Angulimala, you stop too. Suppose I question this recluse. So the Buddha says, you know, what I've stopped is I've stopped harming. You know, and that's what you, you know, he explains to him, that you, know, you have to stop harming. And the thing is that, I mean, this is like, there's this way, what's so interesting about these sutras is the way they combine the kind of naturalist fiction you know or a natural story of this person walking through the woods and the guy with his you know it's, all the details are there you know the people that he runs into and the you know he's carrying the sword and the shield and the bow and the quiver and then there's this magic that happens right the buddha has this like super normal power i don't know if that's true that the Buddha had the supernormal power, but somehow his presence like just hit this guy. And it's like that moment of clarity, right? It's like, right, what have I been doing? Like he came out of this enchantment that his teacher had kind of put on him. And he realizes that this is the Buddha. Because he's already, you know, he knows about the Buddha. He's like, he's been doing the spiritual practice, you know, and he's actually had laid the groundwork for, and then, you know, has been completely thrown off. So he just, he says, so the, the bandit on Golimala took his sword and weapons, flung them in a gaping chasm's pit. The bandit worshipped the sublime one's feet and then and there asked for the going forth. This is what's called to be a monk. You go forth into the, what the, it's called the homeless life. You know, again, really interesting that, you know, at this time, going forth into the homeless life is considered a, a wise and spiritual step to do. In our culture, not so much. The enlightened one, the sage of great compassion, the teacher of the world with all its gods, addressed him with these words, Come, bhikkhu. And that was how he came to be a bhikkhu. In those days, the ordination process was very simple. Now it's much more complicated. You have to take all these precepts and go through all these vows and everything. In those days, Buddha just said, Come. You're, you're in. So... You know, this is 
part of the story is kind of amazing and shocking and exciting in a certain way. But the story goes on, of course. So the Buddha goes back to Savati where he's staying with Angulimala as his attendant. And King Pasanati, who I mentioned before, this is the, his, his kingdom where the Buddha is living at this time, comes to the Buddha with like a big crowd of people because they've heard that Angulimala is around. And, and he says, you know, um, you know, we wanna, we're trying to find him and, and they're like scared and it seems like they're kind of visiting him, him to say, you know, we want you to be safe. Like, be careful. And so this is what the Buddha says. So here's, here's um, King Pasnati like coming to the Buddha and, and there's a lot of monks around and he's at his monastery basically. He says, great king, suppose you were to see that Angulimala had shaved off his hair and beard, put on the yellow robe and gone forth from the home life into homelessness, that he was abstaining from killing living beings, taking what is not given from false speech, that he was refraining from eating at night, ate only in one part of the day and was celibate, virtuous of good character. If you were to see him thus, how would you treat him? And the king replies, Venerable sir, I would pay homage to him or rise up for him and invite him to be seated. So, you know, even though this guy is known as being, having murdered hundreds of people, the king has so much respect for the Buddha and for these, his followers that he says, well, you know, if he's ordained with you, then I'd, I, I would respect him. I'd bow to him. You know, and it's kind of a, a refuge. Like, we sort of can't imagine that in our, in our time. Uh, you know, if a murderer just said, like, oh, I'm going to become a monk. Like, oh, okay, good, we won't arrest you. So then the Buddha, now, at, on that occasion, the Venerable Angulimala was sitting not far from the Blessed One. And the Buddha extended his right arm and said to King Pasanadi of Kosla, Great King, this is Angulimala. Oh, uh-oh. King Pasanadi was frightened, alarmed, and terrified. Knowing this, the Blessed One told him, do not be afraid. Great King, do not be afraid. There is nothing for you to fear. And the King's fear, alarm, and terror subsided. He went over to the Venerable Angulimala and said, Venerable Sir, is the Noble Lord really Angulimala? Yes, Great King. And then he says, and we learn a little bit about names here, he says, of what family is the Noble Lord's father? Of what family is his mother? My father is Gaga, Great king. There's two G's in the middle, not Yeti Gaga. My father is Gaga, great king. My mother is Montani. So then um, Pasnati addresses him. He says, let the noble lord Gaga Montani Puta rest content. I shall provide robes, alms, food, uh, resting place, and medicinal requisites. So uh, just sidebar here. When they add puta to the end of a name, that means son of or child of. So he's, he's calling him by his father's and his mother's name and then adding puta to the name. Gaga is father, Montani is his mother. So he's Gaga Montani Puta. So Sari Puta, you may have heard of him. He's famous. He's the son of Sari.
Okay, fun stuff. And, uh, and so the, the king now is actually offering to take care of Angulimala, this killer, and give him his robes and, and all his food and everything. And Angulimala, who's like trying to really take the hardcore path, he says, no, that's okay. He, he's, he's a, what's called a refuse rag wearer, so he doesn't wear like new robes, he only wears like old robes and uh, living in the forest, and so he refuses. So, the story goes on from here, that, um, and, and just takes, an, uh, this is like act three now, um, it has one of my favorite line, lines in the suttas here, where, where uh, the King Pasanadi, um, he says, we, we ourselves could not tame him with force, force and weapons, and yet the Blessed One has tamed him without force or weapons. And then he says, and now, Venerable Sir, we depart. We are busy and have much to do. This is the king. Of course he's busy. So this is, the Buddha says, now is the time, great king, to do as you think fit. Which is a phrase that always, always shows up when people are like leaving the Buddha. And my impression is that it's the line that he uses when people really shouldn't be leaving. Like they actually should stay around and practice. Somebody says, well, time for you to do as you see fit, but you know, you're kind of missing something. Anyway, that's my editorial. So, next thing that happens is that uh, is that um, Angulimala goes into town for alms and he sees a woman who's giving birth, who's having trouble giving birth. And he's kind of freaked out by it. He saw a certain woman giving birth to a deformed child. When he saw this, he thought, how beings are afflicted. And he, he comes back to the Buddhist and he tells him about this. He says, I saw this woman giving birth to a deformed child. And I, I, I thought, you know, it's terrible how beings are afflicted. And the Buddha says, in that case, in Gulimala, go into Savati and say to the woman, Sister, since I was born, I do not recall that I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this truth, may you be well and may your infant be well. And Angulimala is like, uh, I would be lying if I said that. But it's like, okay, okay. Say, since I was born with the noble birth, since I became uh, a monk, I have not taken anybody's life. I say, okay, I can do that. He goes back and he says this to the woman and the woman and the child are healed. It's like, a, it's a miracle, right? Performs a miracle. And because of this, Angulimala now has become, is the protector, is, is seen. And what he said to her, this line about, since I was born with a noble birth, I do not recall I have ever intentionally deprived a living being of life. By this true may, truth, may you be well, and may your infant be well. This has become a traditional chant that Theravada monks do for, for pregnant women. Um, so, you know, talk about a turn of events, right? This guy who was a murderer, who killed 999 people, in the tradition is remembered as the protector of children. 
So in a way, this is how his amends gets made and how his living amends and how his karma gets reversed is that he becomes the person who, um, you know, is, is protecting the next generation. So all the people that have been born and been safe because of his words. Well, one more thing happens here. And that is that um, the Angulimala it goes for alms round. And uh, it says, now on that occasion, someone threw a clod and hit the venerable Angulimala's body. Someone else threw a stick and hit his body. And someone else threw a pot chart and hit his body. Then with blood running from his cut head, with his bowl broken and with his outer robe torn, the venerable Angulimala went to the Blessed One. The Blessed One saw him coming in the distance and told him, Bear it, Brahman, bear it. You are experiencing here and now the results of deeds because of which you might have been tortured in hell for many years, for many hundreds of years, for many thousands of years. So what we learned then from the, some of the notes is that Angulimala has had this awakening. He's had a breakthrough into enlightenment. And that according to what supposedly we, you know, what the Buddha teaches, once you become enlightened, you're not going to be reborn in any other realm, in, in any other, you know, painful realm. But you can still experience suffering in this lifetime. You can still bear the consequences of your, of your uh, actions in this lifetime. So it's, you know, it's a complicated story in a way. I mean, it, it's often presented in an oversimplified way. So forgive me for, for taking you through the details of it. But I think it's worth looking at the, you know, the whole story as well as kind of the, one, a couple of morals from it. I mean, clearly the critical moral from it is that the Buddha says we are, nobody is beyond redemption, you know. That even the murderer, if they turn themselves around, can have a spiritual awakening, and and I think that's clearly a message that you know addicts in recovery can relate to. Uh, as I said before, you know that uh, the miracles that we have in our life. But I think even going back to the beginning of the story is kind of interesting because. Angulimala was supposedly, you know, this best student and was supposedly, you know, intelligent and evolved spiritually. And yet he still went for what his teacher said. And that kind of, to me, that's, you know, reflects poorly on him, you know, that he didn't have, you know, it... Now, to be in a situation where someone gives you instructions to do something that you must know is wrong, and yet you just do it because they're the authority, that's, you know, that's not a good, a good thing. Um, so I, I think that we have to sort of look at that as part of the lesson in here too. Because, you know, when we look at, when the, the Buddha gives his teaching called the Kalama Sutta, when people say, how do I know what is a good teacher to follow? 
You know, and, and you know, men, the, the columnists of this tribe, and they say, you know, all these gurus come through town and they tell us that their, path, their teachings are the best. You know, you follow me, I have the way to enlightenment. And the Buddha doesn't say, like, oh, well, I'm the best, just listen to me. He says, see which ones lead to benefit, which ones lead to ending suffering, you know. So clearly, if Angulimala had applied that to his teacher's instruction, he wouldn't have followed him. He would have said, this is creating suffering. You know, I don't care what this guy said. You know. So he really didn't apply that lesson that, that the Buddha points to. So, you know, we get this sort of big dramatic story of of um, forgiveness. And I think it's important to bring it back down to a very simple level of forgiveness. So it's just in the practice of meditation, people so often create suffering within themselves for their inability to forgive themselves for not being good meditators. You know, I'm no good at this, people will say. I have so many thoughts. And the way we create uh, our own suffering. Um, One of my little sayings is that I keep forgiveness and compassion as my companions, always with me when I'm practicing meditation. And really... My intention is to have them with me all through my life, all through my day. To always be able to look to, oh, you know what? Do I really deserve to be beaten up for this? Do I deserve to be punished for this thought, for this feeling, or for this, maybe it's something I do, you know, outwardly, you know, some mistake, something I said. And, uh, and most of the time I don't think I do. And, the, the wonderful thing about the steps is that they provide this way and, and, and step 10 really is kind of, for me, the, the more critical one that says we continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. You know, that, it's amazing how we can, how people will forgive us when we admit we're wrong. You know, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how unwilling we can be. Uh, I certainly know that before I got sober, I just really found it difficult. I don't remember admitting I was wrong about anything, really. I just felt... And and this is all about self-image. This is all about ego and self-centeredness. That I couldn't handle... Uh, seeing myself as being flawed, uh, despite the fact that I was, you know, uh, you know, very obviously flawed, and and we all are flawed, and and somehow this idea I think gets implanted in a lot of us that we're not supposed to be flawed, and that if we are, there's something wrong with us. And what a kind of odd thing to think, and and it kind of. You know, we think, oh, other people aren't flawed like me, you know. 
You know, one of the things lately, when people say to me, I don't know if it's normal, but I just go, it's normal. <laughs> because if you do it, it's normal. I mean, who, who does or thinks or feels something that nobody else does or thinks or feels? Nobody. And uh, so to me, that, that essence of just seeing being human. And so what the Buddha says in some other suttas, he says you should be easy to admonish. You know, which is the same thing as the ninth and tenth steps. You should be, you know, just easy. Oh, yeah, you're right. I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, just... And of course, I mean, this comes, this capacity comes with the loosening of our clinging to ego, with the loosening of our feeling that we must protect our ego. And, and I don't know why that's tied in. I don't know if it is even tied in with addiction, but it's, it's certainly something that Bill Wilson is talking about in the big book. And it's certainly something that the steps are addressing. You know, maybe it's just that when thrown, when you throw that into the mix of addiction, it really makes for a mess. Uh, maybe other people, you know, people who aren't addicts, are also, you know, also have a hard time admitting they're wrong. But it's they're maybe they're not wrong so much <laughs> like we are, you know. But in any case. Uh, it really, it's such a powerful thing. And it's, you know, so interesting to me to see that whole process, to see that it's not about, oh yeah, I'm really, I'm really screwed up. You know, I'm, you know, I wrote my inventory. God, what a mess I am. You know, I told my sponsor and my sponsor was like, God, you're really, yeah. You're such a mess. I mean, did anybody ever have that experience? That's, I hope not. You know, my sponsor just laughed. He was like, oh, you're right. And, you think that's bad? You know, let me tell you about me, you know. And then, uh, you know, that how this process, and we can see the 12 steps really doing this. It, it's loosening our attachment to ego, our, our need to have ego, um, you know, and the twelfth tradition actually refers to this. It's that anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions. Anonymity. Not, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm sober, or I'm not going to tell anybody I'm in a program, or I'm not going to tell people my name when I go to a meeting. That's not what anonymity is about. Anonymity is about clinging to a sense of a separate self. Anonymity is being part of and realizing that we're all connected. You know? And so when we, you know, it says you know, self-centeredness was the cause of our problems, right? So there, it's about loosening this attachment to ego. And when we, you know, the 12th, when step 12 says, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, I really think that's what the spiritual awakening is. It's awakening to, oh, like my sense of self 
creates suffering. And when I let go of that, there's less suffering. And it doesn't mean that I don't still have a personality and a, you know, a credit card with my name on it. You know, It's that I don't feel like I have to protect this thing anymore. You know, the, the irony is that we're, we feel we have to protect it because we're afraid that, it, there, that it's flawed. <laughs> and somehow we have to like, oh, don't let anybody see it. And when we, you know, it's like one of the paradoxes of the steps, when we admit, oh yeah, I'm totally flawed, then we have nothing to protect. I mean, Bob Dylan said, when you ain't got nothing, you got nothing to lose. It's basically the, the same thing. When you don't have an ego, you have nothing to lose. You know. It'll be easy to admonish. Forgive yourself at all times. And make amends when you harm people. That's almost all the time we have. So uh, I think we can just do some more meta, but let's do some for ourselves. Last month I was talking about self-love. So this is this comes down to the same topic. So just coming into your body. Feeling how your body takes care of you by breathing. Uh, your heart beating. Right now your body is cleaning itself. What does it mean to love yourself, to forgive yourself? The thoughts and feelings that arise in you come uninvited. Some of them come as a result of our obsessions, our repetitive thinking. But we really didn't choose to have all of this, these having these feelings and thoughts. Be kind to yourself. It's difficult to be a human being. Consciousness and our capacity for thought. Oh, complex. But we sometimes tangle ourselves up in our own knots, trying to solve life. <laughs> 
trying to solve ourselves. Mindfulness actually encourages us to simplify, to maybe reverse our evolution a little bit back to when we weren't so busy in our minds, when they just were more sensing and being. So may we all find kindness in our hearts for ourselves. And may we remember that all human beings struggle with these mind states and offer kindness to them as well. May all beings be forgiven. Thank you. We will be back here again next month, the second Friday, and I'll be in Berkeley the fourth Tuesday of this month. And All on my list. Oh yes, that's right. Next Thursday, I'm speaking at James Barris's group. Um, yeah, the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. Thank you.